Hello, and welcome to the Gray Area Podcast with Joseph Tier. In life, it's never simply black and white. There's always the gray area. I'm your host, Joseph Tier. Welcome, and let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the gray area with Joseph Tier. Today, I got a good friend of mine for an interview to sit down and chat a little bit about what he does for a living with us. In studio today, I have my friend, John Hill. He's a UNCC grad, and he did a competition in NASA just a little bit ago. It was the SLI project. I'll let him get a little bit into that. But just believe me when I say this is some cool stuff. He's a cool dude. He's a good friend of mine. John, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So uh, like you said, I'm a UNCC graduate. Just finished school. It was a pretty tough curriculum. Um, for my senior project, we did uh, this NASA project, uh, which is a competition against a lot of other universities. And in this project, you're generally supposed to, for the most part, you design your own rocket. You have a specific payload that you choose from uh, out of three payloads possible for this competition. And you basically try your best to design a system to make it work. And my whole career in school and college kind of led up to this with all the classes I took and things I learned and working in the machine shop and different things like that used all of it and basically making this our senior project is the climax of our school career and basically puts us in a position where we have to apply all of everything we learned. So what made you choose to go into this field? Well, first of all, my both my grandparents were engineers, both my grandfathers. One of them was an industrial engineer and did a lot of mechanical and electrical things. And then my other uh, grandfather was a mechanical. So as a kid, I built a lot of Legos. I always liked building things. Oh, always with the Legos, Yeah, man. man. Yeah, I was just building a lot of stuff all the time uh, with Legos. And I was really into the space stuff and spaceships and fighter jets and anything like military. And I got really into doing that. And when I was going through my early college years, I didn't really know quite what I wanted to do. And then my mom just suggested engineering. And then I went to A&T for a while and I really enjoyed the math and the physics, which was kind of surprising because I hated math to begin with. And I really sucked at it at first. But once I had a really good teacher for my math classes, it really became enjoyable and I liked doing it and I liked solving the problems. And then I transferred to UNCC to just kind of get away from, you know, Burlington and the small town and wanted to just experience something new. And I wound up really enjoying the program, even though it was tough. And it turns out, I didn't know it before I went, but that program is very uh, highly looked upon and it's renowned all over the world. Right, right. Well, I can tell you enjoy it. Um, What did you enjoy the most about it? Well, the thing I enjoyed the most about the competition is probably just the challenge of doing it. What was challenging? Well, definitely the the design aspect of the project was very challenging because it was 
a new payload that previous years they had always done a little platform where you have a robotic arm that picks something up and then places it in the rocket. But they changed it up on us, and they changed it completely to three new payloads that nobody had ever done before. And mind you, there's there's 50 schools competing in this, and some of those schools included Cal Poly, NC State, MIT, a lot of the really well-known engineering colleges. And knowing that that's your competition, and NASA's the one grading you, that really made it challenging. That's harsh. It, it was. So what was your role? Like, you know, what did you do while you were in this competition? At the beginning of the project, I was a team leader, and... Mind you, because we had a really large team, we decided to do three separate payloads. How many people was in your team? Fifteen, including juniors that were not technically on the senior project, getting a grade for it. Yeah, it was it was larger than any other team we had before. But we have a very good reputation on this project. Every year we've uh, put out a team, we've placed in the top five. Wow. Out of 50 schools or 60. Dude, that's impressive. It is, and that was part of the challenge was we had a lot to live up to. you got to be proud about that, man. That's Nobody else I know can say that at all. Definitely. I'm very proud of it. And at the back to what I was getting into was in the beginning of the project, I was a team leader for one of the three payloads, which was the landing system. And originally, at first, it was very challenging to even come up with an idea of how we would put landing legs into this thing and deploy them because we had two other payloads that were taking up two-thirds of the rocket. We really didn't have a lot of space. And generally, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You don't want to have to do work that you don't need to do because it wastes time and energy. And we're trying to do this like we're a company because this whole the whole point of the project is to model yourself in a way that gets you the most ready for the real world. Right. And so basically you're sticking to what you know. You're trying to put out a product that you could actually bring to market that you you know a design that would be functional. Exactly. And that's that's amazing, but let's let's talk more about this rocket. Mm-hmm. Um like what makes it tick? How do you power it? What fuels in it? What's it made out of? Okay. So just, just layman terms for us, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of answers there. And starting with the how it's fueled, we use a solid fuel. So it's like a compacted powder of aluminum perchlorate. And it's very, very flammable. And they're not always um, perfectly made. And some of them are just duds and explode, like when you ignite it. Some of them go up 100 feet in the air and then explode. I mean, there was one team that had a payload of live cockroaches on it, and they got 100 feet in the air, and the thing just combusted and exploded. And <laughs> Dude. it was hilarious. It was really funny, and I felt bad because I was standing right beside the team when I busted out laughing, and they were all, like, really depressed, and I was laughing at this rocket. I looked to my side and saw them, and I was just like, oh, crap. <laughs> so a cockroach can withstand a nuclear holocaust, but can it? did they withstand the rocket explosion? Well, they can withstand radiation, but I don't know about a rocket motor literally, like, breaking its mounting points and flying up into the center of the rocket, probably <laughs> crushing them in the first place, and then exploding, too, and just completely shred apart. Um, but back to the, the propulsion aspect is... We had such a heavy rocket 
that we had to go to the highest powered motor available that we were allowed to use. And they're so combustible that you have to have like pretty much like clearance and um, a little ID that says you're able to handle these and buy them. We couldn't even bring them onto the campus because they were considered like explosive and you could make a bomb out of it, like a really big bomb. And you had to have authorization to get it, use it, possess it. We had to have authorization from the dean to even order it from the school and bring the ID and everything. But those motors that we were using will propel something at least 100 pounds, like close to a mile into the air. And our rocket was 60 pounds, and it went up over a mile. That's crazy. Um, we had, so the three systems we had were, there was the landing system, like I described a little bit earlier. And then we had a, a payload that held a fragile sample that we didn't know what the fragile sample was going to be at all. NASA just said... You have to make it, you have this much room, you have these dimensions you can play with, and the fragile sample can be any size. Right. So you had to protect that from all the Gs and accelerations and everything. And then we had a drag modulation system that would deploy flaps to control our altitude. Well, that's way too complicated for me. (laughs) Um, I follow most of it, but in general, that's... Just the knowledge to put that together, design it, must have took a long time for y'all to develop. A lot of school, a lot of trial and error. <laughs> but, you know, it's that's something very unique that is really, really cool. Yeah, definitely. And if I may uh, go into just a little bit more about the most challenging aspect that I recall is literally just the interpersonal communication and dealing with each other for a year designing something and the frustration you would feel and the negativity some people had at times because they were stressed and had other classes to deal with and which are not easy classes obviously yeah well i mean what since you did this obviously it means a lot what was the most important thing to you on this competition the most important thing to me on this competition was just the fact that we had a working product when we got to competition and not only that but it worked very well and i was very proud of the fact that my system that i was in charge of was done and working completely as designed without having to do and much redesign at all we had it working very much way before the other systems were working and a lot of people were actually a little bit like acting strange to us because we didn't have much to do and they took offense to it because we weren't really doing much. <laughs> they were just jealous, but man. That's all. We were doing, we were done and we had done all our testing and the legs deployed exactly as planned and designed. And not only that, but because the legs, which I'll go a little bit into the design. I don't want to get too complex because I could talk for hours about that, <laughs> <laughs> but it was basically because we didn't have room we decided to put the landing system into the nose cone of the rocket and how we justified having a landing system in the rocket was in the case of a hard impact landing, the landing legs would help dissipate impact energy and help protect the sample. So if it landed at an angle, which our protection system only was able to dissipate energy in the axial direction. So if you picture the rocket body, it can only move up and down the rocket body. Yeah. Vertically. And so 
because if you chose the landing system as your main project, you had to land in the same orientation that you launched. So your fins would be hitting the ground first. Right. But because it wasn't our main payload and we justified it as part of the protection system, we could land the other way, which meant that we could put it inside the nose cone of the rocket. Dude, that's cool. And because we have access to very um, powerful and industrial-grade 3D printers, we could make very complex geometries that you Dude. cannot normally machine. It's impossible to machine. 3D printers are amazing. You can make... I mean, I've saw the plastic guns that they made, carbon fiber. Mm -hmm. They turn around, take a lock, and it scans it, you know, duplicate a lock, a key, all sorts of stuff. But So, obviously, you spent a lot of time on it, Um, you know, a lot of effort. How did y'all end up doing? So, because of the complexity of our design while still having it working, we wound up placing fifth place out of the 50 schools, the 50 universities, which was a big deal for us because we had some pretty tough competition and they all had some very interesting designs. I'm sure. But I guess the reason they, people placed higher than us was because not only is it design that you're graded on, but outreach and also how you do in your writing and the technical writing, how professional it sounds and people placed higher than us because that accounts for a lot of your score. Right. Basically the majority of your score, because that is mostly what you'll do in a job. Presentation. Is presentation, interpersonal communication, and basically being able to communicate your design very well. So you learned a lot of your weaknesses right there. Why people went ahead of you. Um, What was some of the cool things you got to learn and do and experience while you were doing this competition? Okay, so... One of the coolest things about the competition was actually going to the competition. We had to travel to Alabama to do this competition. And when we traveled to Alabama, we got to meet astronauts. We got to go on to the military base where they actually built the Saturn V rockets that went to the moon. We got to see all of that stuff. We got to go into areas where literally they wouldn't let classmates, certain classmates that were not U.S. citizens go into. Classified. It was so classified. And one of the neatest things was they're building a new rocket called the SLS, which is supposed to eventually do a moonshot and then go to Mars and then go further out and do exploration activities on like the moons of Saturn and Jupiter. Modern science, man. And we got to see them actually building it. That's crazy. And they were welding it with welders that do friction welding. So they literally like rub something on the seam and it, without getting really hot and affecting the properties of the metal, welds it perfectly. Like JB Weld, yeah. except on an extreme level. And like the machine, the welder, and not only that, but the actual piece they were welding together, it's literally the, the transition piece from the rocket body that propels them into space to the actual satellite or whatever they're propelling into space. That's cool. And it was taller than like a three-story house. And that's, like, one of the tiniest portions of the rocket. I bet there was a huge bay they were working oh, in, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. It was really tall. and it's Something you want to do one day? Oh, yeah. It would be very cool to do that. I bet it pays well, too, huh? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the the coolest experience that I had was when we were at the dinner after the competition, sitting underneath a Saturn V, eating dinner, and 
one of the older gentlemen came over and sat with us, and I found out while I was eating that he actually was one of the people that worked with Werner von Braun, who designed the V-2 rockets during World War II. And he was German, and I think he was actually with Werner von Braun during World War II, working on that stuff. And he came to the U.S. afterwards. Wow. And he actually worked on the Saturn Vs. He worked on the moon mission. He worked on the space shuttles. He worked on all of basically every mission that has been going on since the start of NASA and was talking to us all about it and shook my hand and got to take pictures with him and stuff. And I basically got to have a very personal like conversation with him that you generally don't get to have with somebody. At all? Yeah. You get to have conversations, or excuse me, you get to listen to conversations <laughs> by people like that by listening to stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Exactly, man. So we went over the overall design. Can you tell me more in detail, like in particularly about your design? Yeah, sure. So my design, like I said before, was a landing system, and it's in the nose cone of the rocket, and almost all of it was 3D printed, aside from the load-bearing or pieces of it that were going to have to undergo high accelerations and forces. And they had to be very strong and designed in a way that where they were connected together, it was able to attenuate a lot of force. And so the main idea of the design was, so our second payload, the primary payload was right above ours. So we decided to share our electronics area with that. So we had to design a nose cone that not only fit into the front of the rocket, contained all of the landing accessories, and was big enough to share an electronics bay with the primary payload just above it and be able to take forces from the primary payload going downwards onto our section. Wow. So in particular, since we didn't have a lot of room, we decided to use the landing feet as part of the actual shell of the nose cone. Uh So there were cutouts of the nose cone. That's why we had to 3D print the whole thing is because it was so complex, you couldn't cut out shapes like that in the machine shop um, very easily. And so we 3D printed all the feet, we 3D printed the nose cone, the above section, and all of the mounting points were 3D printed. And then we had a worm gear as the center travel, so there was a a lead screw in the center of it that had a um, thrust collar on it, or like a little piece of metal with a a thread on it that was able to mount all the the four legs on it. And then you turn the worm gear... Uh, clockwise and it drives the collar downwards pushing out all the feet and because of the length of our payload section that had the primary payload plus our landing system we had to be able to make the diameter of the feet like where the feet actually touch the ground it had to be a certain length which was 26 inches with a height of 12 inches per, per leg yeah per leg if you they were basically symmetrical four legs coming out and it looked like you know if you have a square and you draw diagonals to the points it was like that and then you erase the the outside parts anyway when you have only 10 or 12 inches to play with and you have to make this drive collar it doesn't even go down all the way you have to design leg members that are able to extend those feet out that far which we were able to do by using the entire height of the nose cone for the feet and having leg members that were long enough that when they used the four bar 
connecting system, which a lot of landing gear from planes uses to deploy the legs, we were able to actually make make sure that the landing feet actually like got out that far. And the, the main reason we did that and had that um, diameter was because it, after calculating many times over all different scenarios of it landing s- certain ways, we figured out that we could get 26 inches mathematically and theoretically, and it was the maximum diameter we could uh, actually get in design right. and make it strong. And it was able to attenuate like the highest angle of tilt like landing. So if it came down, if there was like a lot of wind pulling the parachute and like a 70 degree angle. Yeah. Cause high up you can have 50 mile an hour winds. Like the really leg fast. would catch it and go ahead and stabilize it back up, upright it. Well, not only does do the legs act kind of as a sail, which we actually played with ideas of putting a sail on it to keep it oriented how we wanted to. Right. But if the parachute's, which was huge. It was a much bigger parachute than we actually most rockets use to land it because we we had to have a very soft landing. Right. But with a parachute that size, if the wind is fast enough, it'll make that thing come down. Not only traveling like laterally across the earth like you would if you were running, but it would be at an angle when it hit the ground and being pulled. Right. So, so it, it would like skid across yeah. basically so we had to be very careful about where our center of gravity was it has i mean the lower your center of gravity is the more chances you have of it like correcting itself right and in our design with how the legs moved and with choosing to use a steel collar that drives on the uh worm gear we were able to get the center of gravity all the way to like just below the center of the nose cone when we had like i want to say a close to 30 inch tall section that was going to be landed wow so the the center of gravity was literally like five maybe six inches above the ground it's very very important yeah yeah very important and that was about as low as we could get it and after we did all that we um the main thing was testing whether or not the legs would be pulled out of the nose cone when we launched it so you're moving Mach 0.6, which is like 600 miles an hour when you're launching the rocket. Yep. And going up to really high altitudes. It's a lot of drag and a lot of drag. resistance. And we had a theory that if it was moving that fast, that the wind, because we had a large surface area on the feet, the larger the surface area of the feet, the more wind will actually help to push them in instead of pulling them out in the small gaps. But if you're not moving fast enough, it will... gets underneath them it may work oppositely and there was a little bit of play in the feet a little bit so you could pull them out slightly which we were really worried about at first but our first launch went beautifully and it was just perfect scenario for it and we launched it like three times before we went to competition and because of that we were able to not have to put it in a wind tunnel and test it and we proved that it all worked properly and the lead screw and all the members and everything was definitely strong enough to withstand all that force from that's, the launch. That's impressive. Yeah, it was a very interesting um, project and design, and we had to go through a lot of concept, concepts, and particularly the most difficult or the biggest challenge of the design aspect was the leg members and designing how far apart the linkages need to be, how long, thick, all of that was very... Uh, very in-depth 
statics and solids and very tedious i'm sure tedious math a lot of tedious <laughs> math we actually had to write a program that built a 3d graph for us on accelerations and our range of possible accelerations was so large that like it was very hard to design it because it could be anywhere from the variables five you know two feet per second squared very small acceleration to like thousands of feet per second squared, which would just completely destroy the rocket. Right. And um, <laughs> I'm sorry to keep going for a while, but I get really into it. <laughs> no, man, it's all good. I'm glad we had time to go ahead and kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there's one last thing I would like to say about it was um, we definitely had a failure on a launch one time where the parachute didn't deploy correctly. Right. It deployed out of the rocket but it didn't open up. It just completely stayed straight. And we hit the ground at a uh, terminal velocity. So like 60 miles an hour or oh, something crash like that. Status, yeah. And when it hit, it was very interesting. We didn't ever actually plan for this scenario, but because of how the landing system was designed, it actually acted like a crumple zone and it blew the feet and everything, all of the debris away from the rocket itself and actually, I believe, saved the rocket body, which would have cost us hundreds of dollars more. Which is basically what they do in automobiles as well now with the the um, basically crumple bumpers. Oh, yeah. Same concept. It absorbs the impact, so exactly. your cargo area stays intact. Less shock, less you <laughs> well, know, immediate. I wouldn't say our cargo area was intact because in the end, when we looked at the debris and everything... We found that the lead screw actually acted kind of like a javelin and just went straight went straight through the cargo area. And Shot through the heart, and it's too late. We were laughing about it because the guy that was in lead of that was so pissed off because not only he thought his would be okay and that ours was just destroyed, but his was just completely destroyed because of ours destroying. <laughs> and it was it was a sad day, but next time I'm sure he will want to work closer together. Yeah, well. That definitely was an issue, was communication and working together. Communication is always key in anything you do in life. I, th I think if I were to look back on the project, if I would do something different, would be not to have separate teams doing separate parts and projects, but to work more together Get more involved often. In, because somebody may have an idea that of what they're, they're doing on their, let's say their part, that's going to affect you know, Team B's part and how they work together and interact, but if they don't oh, yeah. communicate, then you're, you could have adverse effects when you could simply come up with a design that would meet both needs. Oh, yeah, and you get guys that are great people that you like hanging out with, but you just cannot really work with them very well on the project. Cause Welcome to the real world. They get very uh, controlling at times, and they're so stressed about it that they want you to use their idea and push for it very hard because they, they really believe they're doing something right and good and they genuinely mean it in a good way but it gets very suffocating and very difficult to handle. Well anytime you work in a team you have to be open to other people's ideas mm -hmm. and human nature selfishness we all believe <clears throat> our ideas are correct and that's because we thought of them we know how the thought process works on developing, development of them but at the same time, you have to respect that the people you're working with are have every much as of 
a right to be there as you do, and their mm-hmm. thoughts and ideas should be respected and took into account as well. It's just another example of thinking outside the box. I agree totally and wholeheartedly, and if I was to give any advice to anybody considering an eng- engineering degree, and I'll close on this, is that always, if you're working on with people in any form or fashion, tests, homework, studying, always be open to other people's ideas and ways of doing it because you never know. You might, it happened to me many times where somebody told taught me this really weird way of doing a problem, but it was really easy to do and got me through some classes and definitely this project listening. Well, it got you to look at it a different way. And a lot of times if you can change your perspective, you can learn. And I always say the day I can't learn anything new, Mm-hmm. is the day I'm dead. Well, <laughs> just freaking taking criticism, well, is the best way I can put it. Being able to take constructive criticism without letting it bring you down. That's maturity. Mm-hmm. And professionalism. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Well, John, I want to thank you for coming out. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, there's one more thing I would like to say, just generally about this competition is it was definitely worth it and I grew a lot from it I mean I guess you could say that I kind of became a man through this competition and learned a lot about the real world and definitely most of all how to deal with lots of stress all at once and cope with that in a a productive way problem solving can do that a little bit of pressure can as well But when you're in the proper environment, dealing with it with people, going through it with you, people who are putting, you know, like this competition together, you have support and it can nurture your creativity and it can show you these problem solving skills and it can it can prepare you very easily to deal with stuff like this in the future. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, John, it was nice. Thanks for coming in. Thank um, you for inviting me. Oh, yeah. This was a interview with Mr. John Hill, UNCC graduate. And thanks for joining us. And we'll catch you next time on The Gray Area. Subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and follow us on Facebook as well. Facebook message or email us to at the gray area podcast with Joseph Tier at AOL.com. Music clips provided by bensound.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, we shall all exist in the gray area. <laughs>